0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here.
1: Hey, you know what? It's a new month. Is it? Yeah, it is. And I'm thinking to myself that we should probably have something like a month called Support Our Supporters. Support Our Supporters? Support Our Supporters. We've got some people who support our show. Yeah. And I want to show them some love. Okay. Yeah. So we've got someone who is regularly supporting our show, who's the industry bullfed himself, mm-hmm. Jason Furman, mm-hmm. from... Ainswick Irons- Dog Quip. Ainswick Dog Quip. Ainswick. Yeah. I know you're a fan of Jason's equipment.
0: You know what? Sometimes I get these ideas in my head. Mm-hmm. Let's go I'm with like, it. Jason, go with it. I've got this idea for a tug and I want it to be this big and this round and made of leather. Yep. You got one? He goes, No, that doesn't exist, you idiot, but I can get it made.
1: I go, Do it, sir. He's pretty good like that, the old Buffet, isn't he? Yeah. We should get Teespring. The Buffet spring <laughs> merge made up. <laughs> <laughs> Support the buffhead. Support the buff. Yeah. But we've got people in other parts of the world that are Yeah, you know insurance. who's not a buffhead? Tell me. Mac Le Maclepoint Mac is yes. French for Mark. for not a buffhead. Yeah, for not a buffhead. And he is from Canon Dynamics. Canine Dynamics in Canada. Yep. Please don't slow this one down. (laughs) So if I were in North America, that's where I'd be getting my my working dog equipment from. He's got a great array of gear as well. It does. Yeah. And he's a very generous guy. Yeah. Mm. You know who else is a supporter of the show? That would have to be Kindred Canine. Mm. Mel Benway. Our good friend, Mel Benway.
0: She has got to be one of the best travel to your home, train the dog in your
1: home dog trainers. Absolutely. In the area that she's in, which is- (laughs) Richmond, Virginia. Or Ashland, Virginia. She <laughs> yeah. comes from Ashland, Virginia, but she services all the area around there. She's been a great support for the show and also a great support for the International Association of Canine Professionals. That's right. Who we are proud members of as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're in Australia, you need dog equipment. Mm-hmm. Jason
0: Furman. Einswick dog equipment. Einswick dog equipment. Einswick. If you're in North America, yep. you need working dog equipment. Mark Point <laughs> <laughs> Canine Dynamics. <laughs> And if you're in Ashland, Virginia Or Richmond,
1: Virginia Yep, in that general area Yep, and you need pet dog training Melanie Benway Melanie Benway Kindred canine Kindred canine Yep That's it (laughs)
0: Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. It's the
1: end of the year, finally. We'll get another one out. Yeah, we should get another one out for the end of the year, officially. Yeah. But by the time people get this, I'll try and have it ready for Christmas. Yeah, this will probably be out like Christmas Day or something. I'll try. Thereabouts. I'll, I will try. Hey, I've just seen this on the
0: desk. I didn't notice this. This is... Th- this uh, is the
1: one that I posted the other day from Emily, Emily Manuel. Should we read it? Yeah, read it. Dearest
0: Cookie pea stew Plus Dogs. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Cheers for helping everyone get through 2020 with TCP. This year was a huge struggle and pushed a lot of us into major depressive states. So I had to find a new hobby I could do from my lockdown bedroom, not sweaty. (laughs) I took up cross stitching and spent months working on this thing. So hang it in the studio plus pretend you love it. Thank you for your education and support. Love always lady. Lady.
1: Yeah. Uh, I usually call her lady when I'm right. talking to her in chat. Love always lady,
0: Emily Manuel. What she's talking about is she has hand stitched. It's pretty a, fucking cool, isn't it? Like an actual tapestry of our logo. Yeah. So it's timely. Yeah. Considering we've been offering people wall tapestries through yeah. <laughs>
1: Teespring. <through laughs> we've got one.
0: Teespring. We now have an actual real hand stitched tapestry. Yep.
1: I love it. I don't have to pretend I love it. I actually love it. Yeah. The time and the effort and the love that somebody's put in there to do that for us is actually really cool. Yeah. So my mum used to do
0: these sorts of things. My mum's
1: like a mad creator. She used to make all my clothes and all that kind of stuff. Yep. And she's-
0: done these and i've done them as a kid i can tell you that that is a fuck ton of work and oh yeah to work
1: and to do that from scratch without a template yep that is a lot of work
0: so thank you that's cool
1: it's and very much appreciated and, that, and it came in star wars wrapping which yep. i was also impressed by and the beautiful card has a picture of dylan anderson on the front of it <laughs> <laughs> when you said that in the chat group i was killing myself laughing because i thought that is dylan <laughs> hey can i just say well off topic. Mm. If you haven't seen The Mandalorian, you really need to do yourself a favour. So, we're plugging Disney Plus now? Mate, I have to because Jon Favreau has revived the franchise of Star Wars in my mind. What he's done with The Mandalorian has brought it back because what they were doing in the movies, and especially Solo, I mean, what a PC load of shit that was. Mm. Look, I get it that people want to be inclusive in their movies and stuff like that, but for the sake of a science fiction Star Wars movie, I think we can just back it off a little bit. So- if we're going to talk
0: Star Wars, mm. I'm not like a mad Star Wars fan. I watched Star Wars. I liked it when I was a kid, but I'm not like an over-the-top Star Wars guy, right? Yep. But I watched – which is the one that is like a prequel to Episode 4 where they got to get the plans to of the thing? Oh, Rogue, Rogue One. Rogue One. Yep. So, at the end of Rogue One – there's a crossover scene that is the same as Star Wars, the yep. episode four, where Vader comes onto the ship yep. that layers on. Mm. And in the first time they made that in the original, it's kind of like Vader comes on board and he just yep. kills a bunch of guys as he comes on. But the way they made it in Rogue One was like solicited, not PTSD, but true terror from someone who's been in real gunfights yep. because There's that scene where they, like, Vader ship sort of docks or whatever. (laughs) Docks. And then... All the, like, little loser dudes go running and they're all kind of standing there ready to shoot into Vader's ship. Yeah, as they breach the door. What they've captured in that, that they've, I don't know if you're going to leave this in, this is ridiculous dog podcast talk. But what Mm. they captured in that, that they never captured in the real one, is how terrifying that would be. Mm. So that they, it shows, there's these dudes and it's like, they got a five minute heads up. Like, they're the crew of the ship, right? Like, and they got the five minute heads up on how your little stupid laser gun works. And they're all in the hallway which would normally be an easy thing to do. You're, you're standing in a hallway and a door's going to open. You just blast through the door. No problem, right? Yeah. But you know there's a literal God on the other yeah. side. like, And yep. so when that – it's the way they shot that, the way it framed, it's truly – it's terror. They really capture that because you're going like, there's a fucking Jedi on the other side of that. Not a Jedi. He's a Dark Lord Sith. And the way he comes through yeah. and just like cuts them to pieces. Yeah. They re- like it's a really good crossover scene. In the mm. first one, they just kind of like Vader boarded the ship and killed a few people. No big Yeah, deal.
1: but nobody knew what Vader was or what anything was. Like that was just like, oh wow, this is cool. You yeah. know, like watching this, watching these lasers and these effects going yeah. off. But. As you do learn about the franchise and who Darth Vader is and how powerful and destructive he actually is. Yeah. You know, and I mean, imagine, like you said, it's it's like almost like a god boarding the ship and you're thinking, I'm just a mortal and there's a laser sword wielding god on the other side who's going to come up here and tear the shit out of everything. Yeah. And we've got- And you're guns. like- I've got to do something. I've got to do something. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to have a crack.
0: Like I can't just go and hide. I've got to stand here and wait for this dude with a fucking laser powered sword to come on and cut me in half. And he doesn't even need to use the sword. He can literally just eviscerate me with his mind. Yep. So like, I guess I'll just stand here guys and I'll pretend like I'm going to, you know, like I'm going to die honorably. I'm not going to (laughs)
1: go and piss my pants under the bed. Do you know, if I'm going to make this dog related, I see, (laughs) (laughs) That same fear and panic But also like a glimmer of excitement too When I watch a new decoy getting rammed by like a hard dog for the Mm. first time Okay And they're standing out in the field And they're excited by it But they know this is going to hurt And that dog comes thundering down the field And you can just see that look in their eyes like Oh fucking hell Mm. I'm going to get hit by a bus here Yeah So I've seen that face in new decoys before, yeah, like yeah. you experience decoys, you know, you see them and they go, oh yeah, this is the drill, you know, I know what to expect here. And that's like the first Star Wars. Mm-hmm. But in the second one, when you're watching a new decoy and you're watching a big Roddy or a big Mel come thundering down the field, you're thinking, holy shit, you know, and you can just see that terror in their face. Like, oh, oh this is really happening. Like I'm here and this is going to happen. Yeah. I had that a little
0: bit when I went to PSA Nationals in 2016, Mm. right? And I've been decoying a little bit then, but just dogs here and no real top-end sport dogs had I decoyed at that time, right? And so I was training with the club prior and I did the open field, but it was the day before or something like that, Derek Rose and his dog Casino, and I'd been watching them online. I'd been watching that dog grow up and that's a lot of dog, right? And he's since done his PSA 3, that you know, and he's like, hey, Pat, get, get out here on the field and catch my dog on a courage test. And I'd worked the dog only indoors on short sends and that kind of stuff. And I knew he's fast and I knew he's powerful. And when I went out there, I was like, yay, I'm going <laughs> <gonna> to work
1: casino. <laughs>
0: but there's all these people watching and I'm probably going to get put on my ass by this dog. And I'm going to get super embarrassed. Anyway, it didn't happen. I caught
1: him, okay. Yeah, we had a dog. I think I've talked about him before, but we had a dog back in the old ADT days and fuck you, Paul. (laughs) We had a dog back in the old ADT days called Kane and he belonged to one of the original trainers, Greg. He was from incredible working lines back then. And again, I know I get a bit of stink eye from the Rottweiler crowd when I talk about things like this, but that was when there was a lot of quality working Rottweilers in Australia. Mm Mm-hmm. For Mali people now, when they hear me talk about this, they go, oh, yeah, yeah. You're not comparing apples with apples. But I would put Kane up against a lot of some of the premium Mals of today. He wasn't like a Roddy. He was fast. He was fucking agile. And that dog launched at you from six feet away. He left the ground and put everything into it. That dog kicked the shit out of every decoy. I've seen him put people on their ass, turn people upside down, literally. Like there was a decoy called Jimmy who, you know, we were filming it. And he literally turned him upside down and dumped him on top of his head. He hit him that hard. Mm -hmm. I got to cut my teeth on Kane and I was so excited but also terrified when he was coming down the field because I was that person, you know, like I could see him trucking down the field at me and I'm thinking, oh, this is awesome. And I'm thinking, holy shit, no, it's not, no, it's not. Mm. This is going to hurt fortunately I'd been through good foot manoeuvres and and same sort of thing that you're talking about. And I caught him and I got to be a hero in the first five minutes. (laughs) You were the guy. I was the guy. I mean, look, they didn't set me up for a big fail or anything like that. So I didn't get the full fucking field experience where he comes trucking in at half a kilometer away, but Kane didn't stop. Mm. He showed no mercy to anybody. And I've seen males do that same sort of thing. And good shepherds, of course, you know, like some shepherd people have given me stink eye as well saying, Hey, you're forgetting that there are good shepherds who do this sort of thing as well Mm -hmm. man that was I still recall that when I think of some of the best times of my life those were the days I think of that in terms of you know when you're at any sort
0: of bike club or community or whatever they usually always have some sort of rite of passage dog yes right where is it Kane was the rite of passage dog yeah so it's like okay I'm ready like for me even though political situation right now, maybe I wouldn't go to China if they invited me, yep. but I want to work Big Roy. Like yep. that's a, that dog is on my list. Like I- He'd be I, an old dog now, wouldn't he? Yeah, but still, mate, I'd still- He's your It's the rite of passage yeah. dog. Like I want to do it. And I think most clubs, most institutions, they have that rite of passage dog. Like remember we used to like bring out Max. And for people would say to us, oh, I want to learn to decoy. We go, okay, cool. You got to get bit two days in a row by Max. Okay? Yeah. And it's nothing crazy. It's not like we're going to set you up to get hurt, but you have to face that really big, big. really powerful mm. biting dog. And he was a hanger as well. So like really hard to stay on your feet. Yeah. You have to work him two days in a row. And if you're still... Think you want a decoy after that, then yeah, we'll absolutely teach you. And very few people turned up two days in a row. (laughs) Well, he certainly did dump a few people in their PSA trials, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you see that kind of everywhere. A lot of Mm. clubs, like even when I did my decoy certification, it was Garen. And so they have a bunch of dogs there and we're all working all these dogs, Mm. but Garen stayed fresh until. Like, I think we started with 25 people at the cert, and only six went to like the final catch this. This is your courage test, final assessment, right? And they saved him for those six bites. That's the only six bites he got all day was those six. And I think they did sort of 15 minutes in between because so that he was recovered. Like he was, he was a hundred percent ready to rock and we were pre fatigued. So they'd have to, we did like wind sprints or something. And then it was like, okay, run now the dog's been waiting for you to be fatigued, catch him. All right. Now the net, we start fatiguing the next guy. So And it's a real rite of passage. You go like, holy shit, I'm going to get to work that dog. For starters, I've been watching that dog online. I've seen the video of that dog instead of going around a barricade, go over the barricade to get to Sean. That's that one where that fended attack. And so it was, first of all, I'm excited to have the opportunity to work that dog. That's cool. But then it's like, no, but this is your test as well. There's no, have a work of him, see how it goes. Like, this is us deciding whether or not you will be allowed to decoy trials. Mm. This is the level, this is the caliber of dog that you could potentially face. So you have to show us that you can catch him, which is cool. Right. Mm. And I also kind of liked that they didn't use him for the rest of it. So it was like, no, unless you get to the end, like he's like the boss at the end of the video game. Right?
1: Yes, He's yeah. like,
0: you don't even get to face him until you've proven that
1: you're worthy along the way. Yep. And then we bring out the hitter. No. It's kind of like um, that Bruce Lee movie. I, I forget what the title is, where he has to go around and fight all these people in their temples. Like you've got to get to the final boss. Yeah, yeah. Into yeah. the Dragon? No, it's not Into the Dragon. I can't remember what the name of it is. That's mm. that's a bit of a story buzz killer, but oh wow. mm. talking about dogs and rites of passage and so forth. I remember hearing about this dog called and Diesel, and he was a German shepherd, a black shepherd. And uh, I was up at my mate Simon's place in Geelong when I still lived in Melbourne. And I had my suit in the back of the car and he goes, oh, my mate's going to bring that dog around. Do you want to give him a bite? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. I've heard about him and, you know, I'd love to give him a bite. And I undercarded the dog. Like, you know, I'd been around a lot of shepherds and a lot of roddies at that time. And I'd been bitten by like Kane and a lot of other maulers that really hurt you. And, you know, he came out and he was a medium-sized dog. He's probably a little bit smaller than Randy. And I thought, oh, yeah, he's a nice-looking dog, very active. You can see that he's intense. He had that look about him. Man, when that fucking dog bit me, I had a full suit on, he bit me in the ass and it felt like he squeezed all the fucking meat and the blood out of my ass when he bit me. I've never, like Max is probably in comparison, you know, and he's a lot bigger dog. He's probably, I'd say Diesel bites harder than Max. Yeah. Yeah. He probably had a good 20% clamp on him and, oh, man, I couldn't believe the intensity that this dog bit me with for a smaller dog. Like he just wanted to take every bit of you in his mouth almost sounds like porn up. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like you're going to be getting sweaty. Yeah. But um, yeah, he he really crunched hold of you. When he grabbed you, it was just you felt every bit of pain that that dog wanted to inflict on you. It, but it, it was awesome at the same time. It's
0: really interesting how you get that in some dogs and you can't always necessarily pick it or know Absolutely. where it came from. Like mm. that dog Ghost that we had, he bit from like his asshole forward, like his whole yep. body was in it. And he's a nice looking dog, right? Like a real That's good looking- That's like Sean's looking- little bitch.
1: What's her name? Uh, Zika. Zika. Yeah. I mean, amazing that the talk and the absolute penetration that that dog gives you're you still, when you're still talking- I know, to yeah, up. I know. It still <laughs> sounds like porn up instead of
0: biting. <laughs> but some dogs do that like, and it's odd, like, cause you can get kind of lazy dogs in the bite work. Like my own dog is that, like he bites and he bites hard enough, but mm. he's not extreme. He's not like this over the top- biting monster he's just yeah. a good biting dog yeah, right like Randy yeah but yeah. like some dogs they get it and you can see like they all, want to hurt you it's all their power they it's want everything to hurt. that they've yeah. got and ghost when you worked him he was like a really painful dog to work and it was kind of funny because he was a nice dog to look at he didn't look any different to any other duchy right like mm. he just was a nice dog and then we used to kind of it was always a stitch up because you you go <laughs> I like you'd say to someone, oh, you want to work, guys? So I'd be like, yeah, it's sweet. And everyone would kind of stand around ready to watch because, you know, you're going to get that like, holy
1: fuck, this yep. dog
0: bites hard, right? It was, uh, but it's it, you can't always pick it and there was nothing done differently with him than was done with anyone else. Like it's just how he did it. It's just who he was. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. Mm. What else is going on? That was a, a weird little tangent that we went on.
1: I watched the Dancing with Dogs episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what do you think?
1: Hmm, I enjoyed it and obviously I'm impressed about the level of commitment that that lady and her team have got. Yeah. It's not my thing. Yeah. I just- Because you can't dance. It's fair enough. No, it's, it's, it's not that, all of us. <laughs> That. Do you want to know a fun fact? Yeah. I used to be a break dancer when I was a kid. I believe it. I used to have a crew- and we'd go around and do street <laughs> battles with people. <laughs> Illegal street dancing. Yeah. You'd meet in the street like Benny and the Jets and it'd be like- We'd take our roll up vinyl square yeah, and our beatbox beat box, yeah. and we'd go and meet with up with people deck. and we'd rap battle and breakdance battle with people. Yeah. yeah, I could see it. I wasn't amazing at it, but I could do the helicopter and I could do the turtle.
0: Yeah. yeah. Mate, one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my whole life- it was a guy I was in the army with who who wrecked his back right mm-hmm. and it was like a post deployment like cruise everybody's drinking on this cruise and having a good time and he was just one of those lunatic sort of dudes like they all are, right? And he got a skin full and someone was trying to do the worm and he was like, that's shit. I'll show you the worm. Uh, and he of the floor. No, no. So he knew how to do the worm. That used to be his thing, right? Yeah. Prior to wrecking his back. And he t- <laughs> so he's like, hold my i I'm going to show you the worm. And as he dove onto the floor, it's like the last thing he ever did. Like he could see in- as he was diving, he remembered. He's like, oh, no, I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> anyway, he did one one repetition of the worm and yep. then was flat on his face for the remainder of the night. Just like someone Yay. called me an ambulance. And we're on a boat. There's nothing you could do. Yep. He just had to lay there. Like, I should never have done the worm. What was I thinking? Why didn't someone stop me?
1: As you get older, you start reminding yourself, no, don't do that sort of don't stuff. Do the like worm. you don't want to be that big lump that goes and breaks your ankle or mm-hmm. blows your knee out or anything like that. So dancing with dogs, not for you. I truly admire it, the talent and commitment. But as soon as she said, I'm in this room for seven to ten hours, I knew it's just a, a crazy obsession. Yeah. Well she's a she's, she's a she's world champion. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And and I totally appreciate it. But I just thought to myself, no, that's just craziness. Seven mm. to ten hours a day. I mean, is that her or is that her and the dog? Like, that's a lot of fucking time.
0: Well, I'm sure she's also instructing people. It's just her job, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's her full-time gig. Mm. I think that's an interesting sort of idea to explore is anyone that is the world champion at
1: anything yep. is doing it. I, look. Seven to ten hours a day at the minimum. I think last week we talked about the whole fact that, you know, Beyonce was spending 18 months for, for two-hour show or something yeah. like that. And you've got to do that. That's what you've got to do to be the world champion. You know, and I admire that from people that they can actually do that. But that's it. Like, that's all they got. That's their life. That's my definition of crazy is mm. singling out everything and just wanting to do that. But I still admire her. Mm. I still admire her. Mm. Mm. I think it's awesome. I know. But you're an obsessive person.
0: Yeah. But, yeah. like, I just think that that singular focus is very impressive to me. So long as your your life isn't, like, literally falling apart and we don't know anything about her personal life. Don't but, at all. Um I think that anybody that can dedicate themselves fully to anything like that is spectacular. And and I think that anybody mm. that is winning world championships at anything is doing exactly that. But at what cost? Well, we don't know. But mm. I mean, thing is, though, how long do you spend in your work? Seven to ten hours a day? Yeah? So, like, if it's just your work and you are being paid to do it. That is a fair comment. And, you know, most professional athletes
1: mm. are that. It's their job to be- that way. Yeah. No, it doesn't have to be at the cost of everything else in your life. Yeah. That's a fair cop. And I have to wear that on the chin because that, that is true that people are involved in something at all. But I thought to myself, I really would love to dissect that. Like, what does that seven to 10 hours mean? Does that mean it's her and her dog, or does that mean that's her with her students, or what is that? like? Well, she has multiple dogs,
0: mm. so it could be just her alone. But all, No, but she's the coach and captain of the team, so I mm. imagine that
1: it's multiple people. Interesting, another concept that she did talk about it as well was that that was a bloodline that she'd been dancing with. Like, mm. that's gone back from the father and the grandfather. Yeah. So- you know, like when you were originally talking to me about that, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if this is a genetic trait like Michael Ellis selects from, you know, like the dogs that he was using when he was doing Mondio and so forth. Yeah. Is that is this a bloodline that it's passing on some sort of portion of DNA to their offspring that then you can then see it in that dog and select for that trait. It was interesting that she brought that up because I'm thinking, well, this must be a trait in the dogs. Yeah. You know, you were talking about how the dogs behaved and the similarity in the behaviors that the dogs were displaying. And I thought, well, again, that sounds genetic to me, that they're, mm. you know, they sound like they're related or that there is a genetic trait that they're displaying there. And I think that's what it is.
0: Yeah. Like, for sure, we can actually, you know, we said we are going to talk about answering questions that we didn't get around to last time. And actually, we can kill two birds with one stone with this exact discussion. mm because two of the questions we had were this, right? And they're one after the other, which is interesting. Mm. Felicia Pine says, how to find the best mentorship programs when you're trying to become a trainer? What are the good signs, some red flags, and what should you expect from a mentor mentorship program? And what do you need to bring to it as a learner apprentice, right? So mm-hmm. there's plenty we can talk on that. But the question under that is from Tanveer that says, I'm getting my competition dog. I know exactly what I would like, my Remco slash Randy, as it were. Should I get an eight-week-old pup or source a green dog? I ask, as all Jerry Bradshaw's PSA 3 dogs started with him from one, two, or three years old. But Zot was many months old. All of Ivan's competition dogs have been dogs that were handed back to him from his breeding program as too much to handle, not the pups he selected at eight weeks. So it's an interesting question. Segue at what you're talking about with how she breeds those dogs mm. is that, you know, it's something that I'm almost positive we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I feel like, you know, sports are a test of many, many things, Absolutely. right? Sports and competition are a test of many things. And only one of those things is the trainer's skill, yep. right? Because, like, say, take PSA, for example. It's one of the examples I love to use when we're going to talk about this is no matter how good a trainer you are, you will not get a dog that doesn't have the nerve to get through it. Mm. Through it, Like, dogs can be selected out for nerve, yep. right? And that's true of, like, all games that there's, there's a certain level where the dog must be suitable for. Absolutely. I think that that is a very deep chasm in PSA because- the dog has to have it or they don't. And yep. and, and the pressure is not perceived, it's real. Yep. Right? So the dog does get hit with the stick. Like yep. the dog will be have to And it's chaos erupting around the dog. Yeah. Like but I mean, random like even the best trainers will say mm. to you, I can train that, right? Like the dog has to has good nerves, but I can show the picture to the dog over and over and over and over and the dog will get it. Yep. But what you can't do is convince the dog that He's not going to get hit with a stick and then hit him with a stick. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So like, and, and it's not always going to be a stick. It's going to be random environmental. So yeah. Or have a cap gun go off right next to him or something like that. Exactly. So one thing I think that's really interesting is that all the sports, yeah, they're a testing ground for training, which is important. And we have like a proving ground where we can say like, yeah, you were able to train a dog to a certain standard. And there's Mm. evidence of that. But the sports as well are a really important testing ground for the genetics of the dog. Mm. And that's, you know, one of the reasons they have existed for so long and must continue to exist for so long. I remember Bart telling me one time about the way that a dog becomes, like, it's not so much anymore because, you know, the world is changing. But in the 90s, to become a stud dog in the MBBK, right, to have one of the dogs go, okay, we're going to breed from him. Yep. He first had to be four years old, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Had to be competing in the Cat 1, which is their, you know, level 3 equivalent, like their most, their highest thing. Yep. He had to still be jumping the maximums, Mm -hmm. right, the 10-foot palisade. Yep. And he had to be biting in the legs unless there was a reason that he, like, shouldn't, right, like an injury. Like, Zot actually, you know, wrecked his neck so he was in the arms. Yep. And so, the gateway to breeding was you had to be proficient in the sport, Mm -hmm. right? And therefore, the dogs that were bred for the sport were Largely all proficient. There was very little washouts because the gateway to be even being created was difficult. Yep. And this is pre, you know, hips and elbow x-rays. And you mm. don't, if your dog is jumping, if your four-year-old dog is jumping a 10-foot palisade. Yep. You don't need hips and elbow x-rays. You, mm. you know that his hips and elbows are good to go. Right. Sounds like Gattaca for dogs. Well, exactly. Mm. Right. And so- I think that it's important to, you know, acknowledge that Schutzen was a breed test. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So all these sorts of things, they're relevant that the training is super important, but the dog is also super important. And Mm. it's one of the reasons why when you see people come into these sports with off-breeds and they're like, I'm going to be the one, you're like, you're probably not. Right? Mm. Like you may be, but that sport was designed really to test a particular dog. And not only do you not have that particular dog, you've got a completely different breed of dog, right? Yep. So now we're relying on your training and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, right? Mm. But more often than not. But so when you're talking about mentorship that as Felicia says, like who should I learn from? and And it depends on what you want to learn. And we can tie those two things together because I think as well, like, the styles of training that people are really excel at is often because of the type of dogs that they have. Mm. Right. And so if you're breeding your own dogs, like all good breeders, typically uh, all the really, really high end, very good quality breeders. I know are breeding dogs for themselves and there's just leftovers. Yep. Right. And so they're breeding a particular dog and it's the type of dog that they like. Mm. Right. And so their training, it's like when we talk about like in mission success, it's one of the things i I found myself, you know, referring to a a few times on this podcast and and I I spoke about it. I think it might've been with Mark Oppenheimer on the live I did with him, where we talk about the most likely course of action and the most dangerous course of action, right? And so your plan has to be established to be suitable for the most likely course of action, but handle the most dangerous course of action. Mm -hmm. If you're breeding dogs for you to go into competition with, you are breeding dogs that are the most likely course of action, right? Yep. Like you're breeding dogs that are most likely – your your training program yep. is most likely going to work on that type of dog. Mm. Of course, we're talking about skilled trainers who can train any dog and so that's them dealing with the most dangerous course of action where it's not like their training only works on that one type of dog but it's best suited to it and yep. they've built that type of dog around them. and And all the way – the way people train is really – Uh, indicative I think of the way that the type of dogs that they own, Mm. because you own the type of dog that's going to fit the program in which you like to train. Or maybe it went the other way. Maybe you had, like initial stock from your breeding that were a particular type and you learned you your training style was developed around that type of dog. It's a bit of both. Yeah. So, it, it, mm. but which one's the salt, which one's the pepper, who, who knows, right? Mm. And it could be different for each person. Yeah. And to Tanvi's question there, when he talks about it, like most of Bart's dogs. So like he talks about Zot being, Zot was three months old when Bart got him, but yep. almost all of Bart's dogs have been, descendants of Zot, Mm. right? They're all the same bloodline that he's, he's used. And, and, and because it's a particular bloodline that he likes, not his current dog actually, but, or, or uh, Michael's dog, uh, Ragnar, that's a different bloodline, but uh, it's the same kind of thing going through. Mm. Ivan has his own very successful bloodline. That is a type of dog that he has built. Like, so it would be outrageous to say, oh, that's not the kind of dog he's into because he's, he's spent 40, 30 years building that dog. Right. And, Choosing the dog then is the next sort of step in what we're talking about. The other thing Tanvir asks about is Jerry Bradshaw has dogs that were one, two, three years old when he got them. They're the, mm-hmm. all the ones that he went to PSA 3. And you got to look at like, why is that interesting, right? Like, why is that the case? And as a surface level, you go, oh yeah, he gets older dogs and trains them. But knowing Jerry, and and he's spoken about it, I'm, I'm sure either on his podcast or with us, mm. is that- His day-to-day is training dogs, right? Police dogs, churning them out. And he's got a formula for that. And Tar is one of the, you know, an amazing place for turning out these kind of dogs over and over Mm. and over. He knows how to do that shit. So one of the reasons he gets older dogs that have already been trained in other programs and tries to turn them into PSA 3 dogs is for the challenge. So it's not to make it easy on himself. He's the opposite of what you're looking for, Tanvi, where he's not looking for a dog that is going to be his like the dog that he competes with and Mm -hmm. makes him look good, he's quite willing to accept the dog will make him look, well, not make him look bad, but will challenge him, Mm -hmm. right? And will be a difficult thing because it's going to force growth and it's going to make him rethink what he wants to do. And it's also going to, you know, a lot of us as dog trainers, I think have, you know, when we're dealing in pet dogs, it can be easy to, Become stale and burn out and that kind of stuff. And you have a sport competition dog that does the bite work and the fancy healing and all that kind of stuff to keep you excited and fresh. Well, Jerry's doing that every day. He's doing police dog stuff every day yep. and his sport is very closely aligned to that. So to keep it new and exciting and fresh to him, he wants the challenge of a dog that is going to be that especially difficult to do it. Mm. So it kind of, both of those kind of fit together. And when we talk about Paulina or Alina, if she's running a certain bloodline of dog, there's a nostalgia to it, of course, like you want like the son of that other dog and you know, like there's that for sure. But
1: most hardcore dog people are like, no, like I've built a set of you traits. Know, those, those people aren't idiots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like so if you want to remain on that pedestal, then yeah. you need to you need to have that selection of dog because otherwise you fall from the limelight. That's right, and I'm- and that is very addictive for that type of person.
0: Yeah, but I, I don't, like I don't know that we need to always frame it as like the limelight part. It's that they've cultivated a bloodline mm. that is in tune with what they want to do. Yeah, right. And what you don't see is the dogs that they've gone through and not used, yeah. right? Which there would be many because that's just kind of how genetics work. They don't all turn out that right way. So when you – like for us as lay people, when we look at these people and they enter the field yeah. – like I, Remy's my ninth Malinois, right? Yeah. So like you you keep the ones that suit the way that you want, mm. right? You don't
1: necessarily just like I, here's not, a random one I'm and here hacking it is going to go. I, I, like I'm saying, if you want to hold that position – You can't do it with a dog that's not going to do it for you. Every Batman needs their Robin. That's right. So I feel like from watching that dance with dogs,
0: for sure there would be dogs that are dancing bloodlines yeah, and they would have genetic traits Mm. that would be more suitable. Like to say that she could only train a dog from that bloodline is false, but that bloodline is best suited to it. If you want to be world champion, you're going to need that bloodline. Mm. It's the same as, you know, like, is Remy capable of doing IGP? Of yep. course. He totally could do IGP. Mm. Is he capable of being the world champion, even if he were out of my hands and in someone else's hands? No way, right? Because he's not – he doesn't move the right way. He mm. doesn't have the body structure. He can't – he doesn't. He would never – no amount of training would make him uh, more graceful in the jumps because he just isn't, right? Yep. Like, so you're not going to put in what nature did not it's not going to happen. Mm. So you can have fun and you can compete and you can do really well, but as for being the best- Yeah, the one percenters. Yeah, as, mm. a, as a team, because you as a trainer, like I say, like he could be in the best trainer in the world's hands. Mm. That's not going to change the way his body moves, mm. right? Like it's not going to change the way his structure is put together. And, and it's not going to change the amount of endurance that he has. Like he would never make it through a French ring trial where he's on this field for 45 minutes. That's not going to happen, right? Yep. So like there, there's, there's elements that are really important from the trainer mm. there's elements that are really important from the
1: dog yeah and in order to be world champion you've got to have both yeah right absolutely must have both yeah well i mean that same argument exists when i was talking to people in guide dogs you know i mean they're yeah. they're breeding a certain type of dogs and they're trying to breed out certain types of traits that are more desirable in let's say explosive detection and so forth like explosive detection labradors are quite feisty. You know, they're energetic, they're greedy, they're always enthusiastic in the environment, and that's exactly what they don't want. Mm. They want a dog that's more sedate. They want a dog that's calm. They want a dog that takes direction. So they're looking to breed that trait into the dog rather than have that excitability, and that's more of what people in the sports are trying to breed into the dog. You know, they don't want that sort of laid-back casual attitude they want a dog that's more investigatory a dog that has a really greedy food drive a dog that loves biting and loves retrieving you know all of those things are desirable so it depends on what you're actually trying to achieve in your dog and that's what you've got to go looking for you've got to go hunting for that type of trait yeah you know so naturally that people like Ivan and Michael and even what's the lady's name in Russia Polina Polina These people are crazy if they don't get involved in their own breeding program or closely align with somebody who's breeding that type of dog for them. Yeah. That they can go and, you know, have a selection criteria and say, those two puppies there, they closely align in the type of behavior I want. But as the super dog program found, there's no guarantee. Mm. I mean, I'm raising a new little puppy at the moment that I don't know what his future is going to be. He's a blank slate right now. And, you know, I did a little live video the other day where I was taking him out into the training shed and playing with him out there. And he's a very bold and very courageous dog, but he's a completely different dog than Randy at his age. Mm. You know, like Randy was just like the Tasmanian devil. You know, he was crashing into things and jumping off walls and where this dog is a lot more, he's very robust. You know, he's afraid of nothing. Like I haven't found anything that he's run away from but he's a different type of dog. So I don't know what the future of this dog is going to be. I don't know if he's going to turn into an amazing working dog because, again, to echo on that term, what they did in the Superdog program is that they just couldn't determine whether a dog at 16 weeks of age was going to be that dynamic presence that they wanted in an adult dog. Yeah. I would love to see that
0: experiment Mm. replicated by a breeder who has their own bloodline mm-hmm. and knows it intimately. So say, you know, a breeder who has been breeding and competing yep. and tracking the puppies for 30 years. Mm. Go to them and let them breed a litter. Yep. And at 8 weeks old, ask them who's or, you know, 16 weeks old, what was the the benchmark time frame where they made a decision at the Superdog program where they tried to make the call. I'd love to see that. Right, and see, like someone who knows it intimately, the mm. bloodlines intimately, and has you know been doing it for thirty years, and say at sixteen weeks, tell me who's going to work out and who's not. And mm. and I reckon that there would be a lot more success. I think they'd be able to see a lot more than people have because you know they, they're working off more data points. So they'd be like, oh yeah, well I've seen mm. because looking like a working dog now doesn't necessarily mean it's going to look like a working dog at two years old. But I've seen that before and i know what that leads to Mm. right so i think that's kind of the interesting role of you know old bloodlines and and you know genetics in that way is important but also breed like breeders that really know their bloodlines and have seen it it's one of the things he said it said in there and i I don't know that it's 100 percent correct but he said all ivan's championship dogs he got back right so like there, that's looking and saying that's not the one i wanted eight weeks but then at you know, whatever, however long later, it is the one I want, mm. right? And it's come back and it does turn out to be suitable. So then does he remember what did that look like at eight weeks? What were the traits that I identified in that that were different to that dog that I had eight weeks didn't like? Mm. But I know for a fact now that turns the dog into something special, so now when I see that again at an eight-week-old dog, I'll, I'll be better informed to make a decision, mm. right? Because maybe not look like, not looking like a working dog at 16 weeks in some bloodlines blood means that they very much will be at two years old, mm. right? So I'd love to see that replicated now because I think you'd see really different results than you would at a kennel facility with lots of mixed bloodlines and lots of various people making calls on various things.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean- I remember having this conversation with Joy Bells who was one of the original Rottweiler breeders in Australia, you know, like way back when. I bought a little dog off her, which is – I'm pointing up at the wall here – her, Gammon, Mm -hmm. in the photo that is in the studio – and when I went to see her, she was an amazing little dog, like just incredible, how agile and how enthusiastic she was, you know, I mean, she just took to bite work like a duck to water, I mean, an incredible drive. In fact, I'm saying this with some caution as well. She was like a little female cane. you know, she was tiny little dog, but she would hit you hard and she'd punish you as well. She couldn't knock you over like cane would or anything like that, but she would hurt you if she could. You know, anything that she could do to you. And I mean, she hurt decoys. But, you know, when I went to speak to Joy about her and I I saw her, I was pretty much like the first five minutes I was there, I was going, take my money. And she was an older dog. She was like five months old when I went to see her. And she said, look, slow down, hotshot. You know, like just come and have a cup of coffee with me and come and, you know, like I'm going to go out and feed the horses. I want to get to know you first. I spent the whole day with her, you know, like chatting to her. And I thought this lady is like a pool of knowledge that I haven't accessed before. And had I've just paid her and taken the dog, I would have missed out on all that history. And she was one of my mentors in Rottweilers and breeding, you know, like she talked to me and she had a lot of disdain for people who just get into breeding and just, you know, think they know it all, but realize they don't know anything. And it's still, you know, 10 years down the track, they're still breeding rubbish dogs Mm. and they still don't know what they're doing. And Joy said to me, she said, look, it takes you almost you know, 20, or 30 years to really establish yourself as a breeder yeah. because there's so many things to learn about, not only what you're doing, but what you're influencing as well and what you're bringing into it. You know, like that gene pool is influenced by so many factors. It's influenced by the diet, the environment, but also what's happened in the past. You might be thinking, well, I'm just going to get this because I'm putting X dog with Y female. And I'm going to get all these amazing puppies out of it. But she says, what about all the influence that, you know, mother nature just says, no, I'm not giving you that. Mm -hmm. I'm giving you something from an uncle way back down in the bloodline. It's all of a sudden going to influence your whole breeding pattern. And you're thinking, where did that come from? And that was interesting to talk to because that was really my, you know, like I'd learned a little bit about genetics. Boyd used to talk about genetics. I'd spoken to Dr. Robert Holmes, who was a veterinary behaviorist in Melbourne. I would picked his brain a little bit on genetics and breeding and so forth. But Joy was really, because she was boots on the ground, you know, like she was a long-term breeder and had been involved in it for a long time and involved in working Rottweiler. Like I said, she was just one of those people who really gave me a sit-down education. And I thought to myself, I thought I knew about breeding and I thought I knew a little bit about genetics, but I really don't, Mm. you know, and she excited me to open up that can more, you know, to deep dive more into that and start reading more and start questioning people more and start getting more involved in it rather than just taking it for granted that, you know, and Gammon was the first dog I bred from and I bred from her because of the integrity that Joy had bred into her. Plus also when I started using males over, I was selecting them from basically people who knew Joy and, you know, had a good integration of mm. genetics to complement what she'd already done. Yeah. But still, you just don't know what's going to land on the ground. Mother Nature can be very dicey. She can just say, not today, son.
0: Yeah. Mm. And, I mean, that's the beauty of old bloodlines is that you reduce the variance a lot, but mm. there's still chances anything could happen. And it, that's one of the things that's kind of frustrating for us here in, in the Malinois space is that most of the types of dogs that I'm interested in, like there's the, there's the IGP bloodlines that are mm. older and you can sort of count on what's going to happen, but the sort of more powerful KPV style Bloodlines that are available here, MBK stuff as well. They're all outcrosses, and yep. because we, it's all new, right? absolutely. And so we like we don't. There's no one you can put your hand on your heart and go, no, these are all going to work out, right? And they can't do that either because it's like, well, we're going to find out. And there needs to be, as breeders, they need to, and most are like really stay in touch with the people who get the puppies and find out, like, how did that one go? How did that one go? What's happened? And then there's the there's one of the big issues in that space is then. Nature versus nurture. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this one's afraid of trucks. Mm. How did that happen? Oh, you got hit by a truck. Yeah, (laughs) like so. It doesn't. As a breeder, getting that information back isn't necessarily always actionable data. Yeah, because it might be like, well, that dude. You know, I don't like. First of all, I don't trust him to read the dog correctly. And second, I don't know what he's done. Like there's certain people you can give a dog to and you go like, if this dog doesn't work out, it is a hundred percent the issue of the dog, because I know you have the capacity to train whatever dog is in front of you. Mm. And then there's other times that you look at it and people say the dog didn't work out and you go, well, you know, that's, we, we can we can split the blame there. Or there's other people when they say the dog didn't work out, and you go, yeah, no shit. No dog you've ever had has ever worked out, nor will it ever, right? Mm. So it's, you know, like that's really hard to ascertain when you're going to talk genetics. But I, I would almost bet, I'd I'd bet the house that a really old breeder that knows their stuff would be able to get a much better determination than mm. the Superdog program did on whether a dog will ultimately fulfilled the role that it was bred for. I bet you that a, a good breeder would be able to do
1: that. Mm. It's interesting, you know, talking on this as well. I've listened to a couple of episodes on Working Dog Radio and, you know, like I've heard people that have been involved in military and law enforcement breeding programs and they're always saying, oh, fucking puppies. You know, like you always hear them sigh when they're talking about it, going almost like it's heartbreaking that you start off with this puppy with potential and it just doesn't turn into the dog you want. Sometimes I find that when I've spoken to people, there is a little bit of bias there as well because it doesn't compare to their old dog. Mm. And that is one of the things – that's one of the hardest things for decoys, helpers, owners of dogs and so forth is that it didn't compare to their old dog. Mm. You know, the dog that they had a relationship with or a love for or something like that. And it just – it's not quite the same and they kind of look at the dog going yeah you're good but you're just not like old champ mm-hmm. you know old champ was sort of second dog syndrome second dog syndrome yeah you know and sometimes that level of bias can creep into it as well but there are legitimate claims where people have just said look you know there was all this promise up until about 12 to 14 months of age and then the dog just switched it just wasn't interested in in what it needed to be interested in
0: and it goes the other way You get get puppies that are like, uh, he's the dud. And then one day he gets up and goes, I'm a big boy today and I'm going to fuck shit up. Yep.
1: Like I said, Mother Nature can be an interesting sparring partner sometimes. And I have seen that before where people have come to me with puppies and they've said, what do you think? And I said, really flat, like no real drive or interest in anything at all. I don't think this is the dog for you. And they said, oh, you know, like I'd like to pursue it and so forth. You know, what can I do in the meantime? And this is not attributed to me. It's just the person is, you know, I I probably, the only thing that I did was give them some sound advice, but they went off and actually done the work, but they've gone off and done the environmental enrichment. They've gone and done the proper dieting. They've gone and, you know, played with the rags and done all the gentle work and done all the exposure. Basically, they've given the dog the foundations, which it really needed to thrive in. And they've come back. And and still, this is a dog that I'm saying, if you're going to do this sport or you're going to be in law enforcement, Mm, I don't know, Mm. you know, like I just, I wouldn't encourage it. And they've come back and they've proven me wrong. And I'm not upset about that. I'm happy to be proven wrong in those sort of situations. Like when people come back and they show me that dog, I'm thinking, how fucking cool is it? Yeah. You know, like this dog defied the odds and it came back and it bounced back and the hormones have booted into gear and that's brought the dog into its own realm. It's a complex topic. It is. It's very complex. There's so many unwritten rules and regulations when you're talking about genetics.
0: Yeah. And the world is a different place. So we, we kind of think about, you know, when we're talking training, yep. you talk about how you guys used to get posted over in the ADT days, then fast, door, Uh <laughs> in the ADT days, you'd get posted over VHS tapes that you'd all have to crowd yes. around the TV and watch. Right. Mm. And it, you know, it was harder, much harder to much come across harder. knowledge. Whereas now in training, we can disseminate information, bang. Like yep. someone can produce some good content, put it online and anyone in the world can watch it. Right. Well, while you're watching it, you can be talking to that person on social media. Exactly. Yep. But so the same thing is happening with genetics in that genetics in dogs uh, is spreading across the globe quicker mm. than it ever has before because yep. we have the capacity to do that. Right. Yep. So what, and genetics that are were originally designed for one training method are now being exposed to training methods that they were never genetically engineered to perform under. Yep. So one of the things, again, is we talk about like KMPV dogs kind of being slow maturing dogs. Mm. And we are, we're constantly, a lot of the older school sort of training, especially the older school European stuff is not to do lot with puppies, right? Mm. They just kind of leave them in the kennel, take them out, you know, but you don't do a lot of training with them until they're ready to be trained because some of the older school sort of training is a bit more compulsive. So you've got to wait for a dog that's old enough to manage that. Right. Mm. So then you get those kind of genetics now all over the world, because that's been exported hugely. And then they're in the hands of people who are quite skilled puppy trainers. Yep. So they put these dogs into the, the program, the hands of these people that are going to train them as puppies. And, We'd then say, oh, well, they're slow, so you can't expect too much from them so till like 15, 16, 18 months old. But maybe and, – and then they really become powerful about that time. But maybe they become powerful about that time when they're locked in a kennel until then they don't do anything. Mm. So maybe training them heaps as puppies, that was never – like in the early 1900s, that was never on the cards. Mm. So – that maybe you're pulling at threads in the very beautiful wall tapestry that is that dog, <laughs> right? Yep. Maybe the reason they do become so good at adolescence is because nothing's done with them as puppies and maybe doing stuff with them as puppies undoes Mm -hmm. some of the things that will come about being what would have happened at adolescence, maybe. And like Mm -hmm. there's no – we don't know because where there is no good data set on this. Like I'm saying there's – everybody does their own thing and they should be able to, but there's no one you can look at and go, yes, this very particular bloodline can only be trained under these very particular circumstances and it will guarantee you an outcome, right? Well, there's no one I know that can – give me that pool of data, right? Because, you know, once the dogs leave your hands, I mean, breeders can be selective who they sell the dogs to, but I I can't imagine a breeder that says to someone, hey, no, you're very skilled at handling puppies. I'm not going to give you one of these because I want it to be in a kennel till it's 18 months, Mm. right?
1: Like that's – like I I don't see that situation happening. It might be. Who knows? That is another interesting point because I think that there is – turning back around onto the topic of obsession – There have been a lot of people that I've seen when they've got little puppies that they're just totally obsessed with getting the dog out and putting the dog through too many motions. Mm. I've really seen little pups that have been completely burned out, like almost hate the work because they're being pushed too much into it. Yeah. Again, this is a handler error and it's one thing where they're just too obsessed, like thinking, I've got to be doing the work. I've got to be getting the pup out. I've got to be doing something all the time with it. You know, some puppies- might work with that but i guess if there's any message that i've learned from some of the great people that i've worked with over time is the puppy or the dog should be dictating the amount of work that it can actually do Mm. not you you're not the driver in this you're the respondent in this you're shaping of course you're shaping and you're guiding that puppy through the work but the pup should be telling you no more or you should be the smart one to say no more one more time yeah i've got it I need to put this little pup away. It needs to have a rest now. I should have this puppy nagging me to do the work, not the opposite way around. Yeah. I shouldn't be waking it up. I shouldn't be expressing, you know, my insanity or my obsession on this pup. You've got to be careful with them. You really do because you're shaping the future of the dog. And if you push too much on it, they'll reject it. Mm. Look, I've seen people do this with their own children before, where the child has a potential to do things, but they hate them and they hate their parents for it. Mm. They have no relationship with them anymore. Whereas if they might have just eased them into it, I have no data on this myself or I can say that's absolution. It's just thoughts and theory of observation.
0: No, and like I've absolutely done that with puppies has pushed them way too hard. Like
1: for sure I've done that. The one thing, mate, is that- We're all novices at one stage and all puppies, they've got to start from somewhere. Like even some of these great dogs, they were all puppies. Yeah. And some of the best trainers in the planet were all novices at one stage. Yeah. We learn, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, like the old saying, in order to make an omelette, you've got to break some eggs. Mm. And unfortunately, some dogs get, I'm not talking about crushing them or breaking them. But our enthusiasm or our early obsession sometimes in our you know, our desire to wanna learn and absorb it all, we tread over some dogs sometimes. And it is crushing
0: them, but it's not physical, it's like emotional or it's 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 accidental. They're fire. So like for sure I've had in the past, mm. really overdone it with puppies and had- As have I. Really technically proficient behaviors from the dog, but no fire. Yeah. Right? Like, so the dog's like, yeah, I know exactly what you want. And I know that, like, if I want to eat, then I've got to do these things. Yeah. And I'll do it in order to earn that meal. But there's no fire in the behavior. It's yep. like, this is the fucking motions that we go through. In the same way that, like, so they- they would perform the work yep. in the same way that you would just casually walk into the restaurant, right? It's like, oh, I'm here to take my food, right? Yep. Whereas what you want them to be is like, it's my fucking birthday and I'm meeting yes. all my friends at my McDonald's party and we're mm-hmm. going to have a fucking ice cream cake, right? Yep. And that's the idea of how you want them working into the restaurant. And it's like, you got to cultivate that. And, you, you know, it's one of the things that I really harp on about. Like a lot of my online clients, my sort of Zoom call clients, are puppy raising, Mm. right? Quite a few people- it's one of the things people come to me for is they go, okay, I've got this puppy and I want to make sure I do everything right. And they send me videos and we, we do like a weekly or fortnightly or some people monthly, you know, whatever, like call. And we just sort of, you know, where are you at? What should I do now? One of the things I find myself saying to every one of those people over and over and over is I'm like, make sure you're just playing with that dog. Yeah. Right. Mm. Like make sure you're just fucking around with that dog. Like I'm happy to critique and talk to you about the sessions that you're doing, but It's too Mm. sterile. There better be hours and hours and hours of shit I'm not seeing. Yeah. Like, please don't tell me that these are your only interactions with the dog because there better be just games and playing and playing and just hanging out with the dog and fucking chilling out with each other on the couch. Like, that is all super important. We can work on all these little techniques. And if you want to teach your dog to go to the marker board and if you want to teach your dog to hold the pipe and if you want to do the box work, we'll do all those things. But- They're not what's important right now. Mm. Like what's important right now is you developing a dog that enjoys working and doesn't understand that it's working, Mm. right? It's like the Alan Watts quote where he says, like, the real secret to life is to be completely engaged in what you're doing here and now. Mm. Instead of calling it work, realize that it's play. Yes. Right? And that's the whole kind of point with- puppies yep. is that, yeah, we're teaching them, hey, this is where you can express yourself and this is some shit you should destroy and these are little behaviors that will bring reinforcement. But as soon as they go, oh, I get it, like you're forcing me into this, right? And later as an adult, you have to do that, mm. right? Like in the same way, like I love doing this. This is this is my job. I love training dogs. I love, you know, putting out content, blah, blah, blah. I love doing all that. Yep. But I have to, like I can't just stop, yep. otherwise – my bills don't get paid. That's right. Right. Mm. And that's kind of what you want to do with the adult, with dogs, mm. with those puppies. You go like, Hey man, here's some cool shit. You can earn some food. Woo. Here's some cool games and you can fucking, we can do this and do that. And then when they're adults, they go like, I don't feel like it today. And you go, Oh, actually you have to, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like I tried to make that as fun for you as I possibly could, but, but here's the whip. also like you have to, yeah, right? And If you try and they're ready for it, then that's right. You got to wait till they're ready. They're ready for it, yeah. Mm. But if you straight from as a puppy go like, no, you will complete these behaviours, or I'll, you know. It's just like, okay, they'll do it. Of course
1: they'll do it. You know what? I've termed this, you know, and I don't want to offend anybody by saying this, but I call it Michael Jackson syndrome. Yeah. What Joe Jackson did to Michael when he was a little kid. Yeah. You know, he just made him become something. Now, I'm sure there's elements that he enjoyed it, but I'm also sure that there's elements that twisted his soul too. Yeah. You know, he was a little kid and he should have been a little kid that was allowed to play and he said was, he was a performer as a little child. I really pity the intensity and the and what – I mean, I know it made him great. It made him great, but at what cost too? Mm. What did it also do to the soul of the man? Mm. And that worries me for people that do that to little puppies as well. Like what I like to see personally, and this is just my thing, is I like – my puppies or my young dogs that almost come up to me like a child who yanks your trousers and says, can we play? Mm. You know, that's what I want to see, And then I say, yes, I respond to that. And as I say to people, you're the respondent. You should be looking at that and saying, okay, now it's time to work. You know, there's drive there. There's intensity there. They want to do it. Let's do it. I guess that's what Bart calls eyes like cigarettes burning. Yeah. Well, I mean, he uses the exact, that's
0: what I was just saying. Bart says, Active dog, reactive handler. Yes. That's the, always what you want,
1: yep. is active dog, reactive handler. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's literally what the relationship should be. But what I'm seeing is active handler, reactive dog. You know, like there is a lot of that where the same thing when I'm talking to people, I'm saying, hey, slow down. There's just too much. And this is very sterile what I'm seeing here in the picture. Like you're being too controlling and too manic about getting the dog out and making it go through its paces. Like I'm saying, I'm seeing a dog that doesn't really enjoy the work that could potentially enjoy it, but it's just that it's too much intensity, too much um, sterile background. Mm. And, and it's like you said, mate, you pinned it well before when you said that people should be playing with the dog a lot more. There should be a lot more lifestyle in that, you know, all the dogs like Randy as well, you know, like they've all been mucking around on the couch. Like he's outside a lot of the time at the moment, but all his puppy work was just goofing around inside, you know, running around inside doing crazy stuff. I mean, we didn't really get into PSA until he was a much older dog. Like he's over seven now, you know, and I think we didn't start PSA until he was about four or five. So he's been involved in much later in his life. But because of the preparation we did and the good genetics that I had, I was, you know, I was gifted a really good dog genetically. But because of the preparation that I gave him and, you know, like all the early work that he has had as a puppy, you know, I mean, i got to spend time with you and condition him to, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I had somebody that I could do good decoy work and you and I work well together with things like that. So all of that was, it was just an alignment of the stars. Everything came well together. But that wasn't just a fluke either. You know, like I selected him. I asked the breeder. I said, this is what I want in a dog. This is what I'm looking for, you know. And without tooting my horn, I'm fucking good at raising pups. You know, like I actually do a good job of it. I take them everywhere. I don't get everything right all the time. Like I fuck some things up in the past as well as most people do. You know, I saw an online, somebody was talking about this before. I think it was Adrian. Adrian Forsyth, I think she was talking about it when she was talking to Mark Oppenheimer the other day, where she was talking about fucking things up as a trainer and stuff like that. And, you know, some comments that people were talking about were saying, you know, it's nice to see that trainers are honest about that. Well, I hope people see the integrity that when you and I talk about, like nothing that we've done has just been perfect from conception. As I said before, we're all novices at one stage and all great dogs were puppies. That happens in life. Like I've had to learn. I've had to make mistakes. I've broken eggs to make my omelets. And the, the thing is, is I've also been able to ride on the shoulders of giants before. So I've been able to get piggybacked by them and to watch them and to mentor under them and, you know, like to learn myself and go away and make my mistakes and see what people are doing and ask a shitload of questions to a shitload of people over time. Don't forget, I come from an era where we didn't have social media. We couldn't just access people around the world. I can now. But back when I was, you know, in in my most enthusiastic stage of training, it was literally a mail order VHS Mm. or, you know, a very small group of people. There wasn't this mania about dog training when I started. Yeah. Gypsies were dog tra- dog trainers back then. You know, like I was the shame of my, not my mum, but, you know, certainly my grandmother. Like I brought shame to the family because I wanted to get involved in professional training. Mm. Now, I mean, it's fucking luxury. Mm. There is information everywhere, but that's also a curse as well, Mm. you know, because there's a lot of information that's false. It's misleading and it's inaccurate and it is encouraging people to do too much too soon because novice people are giving out professional advice that they don't know about. They just want to quickly jump into the limelight and say, hey, look at me. You know, do this with your dog, do this with your dog, because it's worked out for me. Well, that's a one-trick pony with a one-time dog that they got lucky. Yeah. You know, and again, that might not always be the case, but a lot of people that I've seen doing it online content, be very cautious of it, especially if – Maybe their stuff is peculiar as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, quirky stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's like a bizarre way of
0: doing something and they can prove it with their dog, it's like, hmm, can you show me that it happened with another dog and that it wasn't just that that dog was going to do that no matter what.
1: That's exactly right. You know, there's been an old saying it's been around forever is that actions speak louder than words. You know, there's a lot of wordplay going around. Like, and as you said, you know, show me again, show me again, show me again, show me on, on a client dog. Show me on, you know, how many dogs have you done it with? Like, show me multiple times that it can be done. Yeah, You know, ask for references. Ask ask to see some backup. We see that in the
0: working dog space, you know, often enough that it's a problem, I think, where we can see some people's dogs are successful not because of their training – but in spite of their training, right? Like that dog Mm -hmm. was going to be successful no matter what, right? Especially in the sort of police dog space where you see some dogs, you know, like the good ones. And these Mm -hmm. are the dream that everybody's, you know, trying to produce for that is they genuinely see people as their prey. And so they're like, once they figure out, Oh wait, I'm hunting people and this guy's with me. They just kind of go like, Oh, I get it. I'm a police dog. Like Mm -hmm. I, 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 I get this. And there's very little training involved in that. You might have Mm. to teach them how to out. You might have to teach them how to like stand still while you clip up their collar and stuff. But the dogs that that are bred for it kind of figure out like, oh, I've heard the sirens. We've got out somewhere. I'm going to find the the fear, pheromone scent. And I'm going to track that all the way to the end. I'm going to fucking nail who's at the end (laughs) of it. Right. And they were going to do that. Regu- like, not because of good training they got, but yep. no matter what happened, that was who they were going to turn out to be. And you couldn't derail them from that in spite of your efforts, mm. right? So, I think that's really interesting thing as well that can exist, you know? Whereas then, of course, you get dogs that it's are like- It's called lucking in. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think that you know, we see that, especially with people who have been in units where the, the dogs are the one percenters. They've got the their budgets to buy them. Yeah. And they don't get them as puppies. They buy them as ready dogs. And then they leave those units and it's like, oh shit, like- I didn't realize that dogs aren't all like those top tier 1% dogs. Like I didn't realize I have to cultivate these kinds of things. I have to be careful with puppies because, you know, I got my dog when he was two years old and he was a fucking killing machine when he arrived. And I just presumed that he was born that way. Right.
1: Well, you've got people like, Jerry and Mike subtle and so forth that are going out there and finding those dogs for them. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Right. They're doing making all that, a, all the legwork. Mike, making, making a living from that. Yep.
0: The last thing I wanted to sort of put on with Tanvir's thing, because it's an interesting sort of, it's certainly steered a conversation for it a couple has. of guys that had nothing to talk about. <laughs> um, is like, he's talking about, should he be looking at getting a puppy or an adult dog? Mm. The thing for him, like, I don't know him, right. Other than I've spoken to him online, see him in the group. Right. But I, yep. don't, I don't know how he trains. The thing is, like, you could be, as I just said then, you could sort of be damned either way or you could kill it either way because the reason that those people are so successful that he mentions by name, Jerry, Bart, Ivan, is because they have the capacity, they have the ability to look at a dog instantly and see underneath, right? To look at the dog and go, oh, you're capable, right? So I'll grab you, right? Now, if you don't have the capacity to see that, it doesn't matter whether you get an adult or a fucking puppy, you're going to make the wrong choice or you're making a a luck-based choice, right? Because if you don't have the capacity to look at the dog and see what is in there. And that's why, like when you look at puppies is as exactly as been saying with that super dog program, blah, 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 is that there's markers, but unless you know the bloodline intimately, Mm. there's probably not a lot that you can assess about that. The other thing, you know, like with the puppy that you got, me and Jazz have got two each. uh, two together that we're sort of raising. I didn't even go look at them because like people like, oh, you want to come and choose your one? I'm like, no, that'll be an indicator of how they are at that moment. Right? Like it's, the breeders know what we want. Mm. They're seeing that they have a much better idea of who those puppies are than us. Because when you go and look at a puppy, that's a snapshot in time. And, you know, I know some tricks. Like I've never bred a litter of puppies, but I can make anybody I want choose whichever puppy I, I want from the litter. Like you can make puppies look a particular way, right? Like you imagine, That's and this true. is and this is a common
1: thing that happens, right? Okay, you get steered into the puppy.
0: Well, I've seen people do it to 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 like when I've gone to select puppies for people. Mm. It's a it's like I think a lot of all breeders know this, but like a lot of lay people don't know that. All right. You tell me like, okay, this is my competition dog. I'm coming to go. I want the highest drive dog. I want the killer, right? I want the most prey. I want the hungriest dog. I want all these kind of things, right? Okay. What time are you coming over? Two o'clock. Sweet. Right. So- Don't feed that puppy. (laughs) You need to feed the others. So at one forty-five, that one gets taken away. He gets put in a crate and gets to watch all the others eat, right? And then, or they get to do some rag work while he's in the crate and then they all get to eat. And when you come, you've got tired, fat little puppies that have no interest in anything except for one Mm. who's running around and dominating the rest of them and is furious and shows all the power and all the things you wanted because he was made to
1: look that way, right? So like- There's, you wash and fluff up the one that you want to sell, and you keep the other ones looking. Yeah, if your pets, bit, yeah, yeah, if, if it's and, yeah, if yep. if it's
0: pets you want to move, and yep. you, there's yeah, all there's the tricks. Lot of, of, lots of tricks. Yeah, yeah, there's all the tricks of putting it in their hands when it's pet. Like there's different markers that people are going to be looking for depending on their end mm. use of the dog. And there's tricks that all breeders know to make you buy the dog that they want you to buy. Right. Yep. So for me, if I know and trust the breeder, like I don't even bother. I'm like, hey, you tell me which one's for me. You know what I want, right? Mm. Like
1: that's, that's how I, I pick Brandy. Yeah. I spoke to Lee Robinson and I know that she's a very integral breeder and I described to her what I want. She said, I've got a dog here. Are you sure you want him like this? I said, that's exactly what I want. Yeah. Like she described him over the phone. We had several conversations. She said, great, I'm sending sight unseen. But I knew the bloodline of the dog. I knew what she was producing. Again, I know she's a very integral person. If she had shit, she'd say it's shit. Yeah. But she said to me, are you sure you want this? prepare yourself for what you're going to get. And literally Randy arrived in the door like the Tasmanian devil, open the door and he just come whirling in. Like I own this fucking joint Mm, and he's never changed. Never since the day I got him.
0: Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's importance of good relationships and that kind of stuff.
1: But like I say, not always guaranteed.
0: No. And even when I was breeding, we couldn't guarantee that as well. That's right. But you have a better picture than anybody that's just coming to have a look, no matter what they know about dogs, you seeing those puppies every day for, for, the last two important weeks, mm. right, is a way better aggregate of what they're going to be like than a snapshot in time. Yeah. Especially if you're doing that vibe video, you know, mm. when people send you a video and you're like, I want that one. It's like, well, oh, that's, that's, you want that one in that moment,
1: in that 30 seconds. I often laugh at conversations that I had with Ben Dawson, who trains at our PSA club. Ben wanted a family dog yeah. because he had little children. And when he came around, like there were dogs that would have been much more suited for PSA out of his male But Ben said, I've got young children. This is what I want to do. And I said, look, him, he's really robust, but, you know, like he's lower in drive and he's not as enthusiastic and everything like that. And um, here's Ben today doing PSA with his dog. (laughs) So
0: back to what I was talking about is the reason – those people that Tanvi mentions being so successful with adult dogs is because they've got to look at the dog and we're identify, we're able to identify that's the right dog for what I, the way I want to train and what yep. I want to achieve, and you can't necessarily do that with a puppy. You, you're making a guess unless yep. you know the bloodline intimately. So the risk for a person who doesn't who isn't able to identify that, is to then be, well, like, are you better getting an adult dog? Are you better getting a puppy? It's kind of much of a muchness if unless – What is the real question is, how well do you know what you actually want, Mm. right? That should be his real question for himself to be like, what are the markers I want in a dog? Yep. Because if I can find an adult dog that has those markers, you're crazy to get a puppy because there's risk in puppies, right? And it's also
1: how soon do you want to mix into it? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the other question you've got to ask yourself. Like, are you prepared to wait and you're prepared to gamble and you're prepared to take the risk? Well, you've got two years to go. Yeah. If you get a puppy- Whereas if you get an older dog, then you've got those traits almost immediately showing up that you can, you know, like you've only got a six to 12 month wait before you can start mixing it up in the sports.
0: But so there's pros and cons on both sides because with a puppy, there's a huge risk that it's not going to turn out to be the thing that you wanted in spite of it having the right parents and blah, 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 right? There's a risk that it just doesn't turn out. But with an adult dog, there's the risk that there's some scars, right? right? Like there's, there's there's already information that's been downloaded. There's a reason he's being sold, yeah, right? Or you know, so like breeders, it would get a dog back. It's mm. because oh, he's too much, and we go okay. Well, in the house that you're in, it's unlikely that there was bad training. It was maybe no training that led to that. Blah blah blah, right? But if you're going to a broker, there's a reason that dog's for sale at the broker, right? And it might be that he's that was his trajectory. He was just getting raised in a kennel to be raised in that in there, and that was always going to happen, no mm. matter what. Or it could be that his hand he bit someone and so now there's a booby trap sitting in there. And that could be a genetic trait or it could be learned, right? It could be that, you know, like he you, there, there could be a myriad of different things, yep. but he's for sale for a reason. There's yes. a reason that adult dog is for sale. And the reasons might be awesome. It's the same as rescue, right? There's a reason every dog is in rescue. Mm. And the reason might be that he had fucking asshole first set of owners that didn't give a shit and the dog's great. That could be the reason. Or the reason could be he's a nervous wreck and he's dangerous to be around, right? Like you don't know. And that's the same with adult dogs. And, Mm. And even all the testing that you do, that's still- there could be something simmering around the surface that never comes out or it mm. comes out six weeks later or whatever. So there's risks on both sides. And I think that it really comes down to in that regard, like how well can you identify these things? Mm. And step one is hashing out, like what are the traits I want in my dog? Like if this is going to be my competition dog, this is what I want to do. First of all, what is the competition, right? Like that's important to know. Absolutely. Right. And how are you going to live with the, that dog? What is in, you know, what's your setup? Yeah. What, yeah. what type of drives, like what kind of decoys do you have access to? Because that is going to, that's going to determine what type of drives your dog will be best suited to want to work in. Because if you've mm. got a, if you've got a dog that's really like a mean kind of works best in a defensive kind of uh, position, you don't have a access to a decoy that's good at that, then you're not going to excel, right? Mm. So there's like lots of different sort of things like that. But I think step one is sitting down with a piece of paper and writing all that down and deciding like, what does my dream dog, if you're looking for your dream dog, who is that? Like you got to really actually know what you're looking for. You can't just go kind of wandering around going, I'm looking for my dream dog and I'll know him when I see him. It's like, no, 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 no. You need to You need to know what he's going to be and nut that out, right? And I think – the way you're going to live with a dog is super important as well. Like some dogs aren't, you know, they're not cuddly. Mm. Some dogs are. And it depends on what you want. Right. Like, so like Remy, for example, like he's really aloof in the house. Like he's not like wherever I am, Valerie's under my feet. Yeah. Right. She's right there next to me everywhere I go. Yep. I go upstairs. She follows me up. Right. She's always just underneath me. She's actually quite a, you know, outwardly focused dog. She runs around, does her own thing, but she's always right next to me. Mm. Half the time. I don't even know where Remy is. Right. Like. We got a. It's a three-story house. Sometimes he's on the top floor. He just goes up there, hangs out by himself. So yep. he's not the kind of dog that is like I have to be with you all the time. Some people really want that, and some people some like for me, it's fine. I, I, that's not something I care about, kind of either way. Like it's not a distinguishing thing. Yeah. But dogs are really different like that, right? So if you want a dog that's going to hang out with you on the couch, get a pet. Yeah, but like no, if you want that from a working dog, there's some bloodlines of working dogs that are really into that. There's some dogs mm. that will happily do that, and they're you know like especially in Malinois, there's some like that Jeff are, Allen's dog. Yeah, exactly. Cyrus. Cyrus. Yeah. Silas. Silas. Yeah, yeah. But like, so that's, you know, some Malinois are those like, they don't understand the concept of personal space, right? Yep. Like they're on top of you all the time. Yeah. And then there's others that are just like, nah, I'll sit over here and you sit over there. Right. And then they'll have, they come in, like Remy does that, like every morning he wants a cuddle and we, he spends sort of 10 minutes on top of you and then he's like, nah, we're um, we're done. That cup is full. Bro, You're lucky I, I
1: get like five seconds off Randy before he's like really? groaning,
0: like, oh, get off. Now, Remy every morning insists on-
1: like a proper good five to 10 minutes no, of he cuddle. He loves a cuddle, like he. but he also wants it on his terms. Like it's like it, it, like a magnet. He goes boom and it's positive and then all of a sudden it turns negative and the you can just change. feel like that boosh and he wants to depart from you straight away.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing, right? Yeah. Like it depends on what you want from the dog. There's so many things that you could want.
1: Yep. <sighs> we should have really
0: uh, got going into, from Star Wars to that. Yeah,
1: it really did take a lot of twists and turns all over the place. What are you doing for Christmas? Working. Of course you are. But, well, I'm going to Dave Maria's for Christmas Day, but, you know, like who knows what's going to happen to us now because Rona just reared its Uh, ugly head again right at the last minute when we'd literally beaten it entirely in Australia. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's interesting, right? For people listening overseas, we were almost completely Rona-free and then- There were
1: no cases anywhere at all. What happened? Um, what, what? Well, allegedly, a flight attendant breached quarantine and was infected with Rona, and they believe it came from the United States. Tisk tisk tisk. Yeah, it's very. It is absolutely diabolical, and so disappointing that that sort of thing is allowed to happen in major cities.
0: Yeah, it's frustrating because we were at the point where it was
1: we're opening everything up. All the borders were open. They're they're all now slam shut. So New South Wales has been ostracised from the rest of Australia stinky we're the new stinky we're the stinky stinky kid yeah so yeah we've been locked out of all the other states christmas is pretty much ruined for us new year's eve is diabolical we don't know whether the fireworks thing is going to go ahead yet so it's really like it's really thrown a major spanner in the movement of regular Australians. but you know it's also affected people from other states who can't come in and visit their family and friends in new south wales either and, and enjoy you know a lot of the beautiful coastline and Yep. countryside that we've got in New South Wales that can't be shared with the rest of Australia. It was very frustrating. I was bragging to people overseas
0: recently about how we were basically COVID free here. We're free. We're, we're going, totally free. We're just going about our regular lives and then yep. a fucking air hostess brings it in. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah.
1: Let's wrap it up. Yep. All right. Well, Merry Christmas. Everyone. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for, for spending so much time with us and all the people who continually support us and do, you know, regularly reach out and ask questions and be involved in our community. We yeah. just hope that wherever you are in the world, like I know we're complaining about the small outbreak of COVID we've got. It still is diabolical, but you know, like we're still following what people are going through in other parts of the world. Like a lot of my new friends on the European committee, Cassia, Lucas, Hugo, Elena, Alicia, Rachel, all of you guys, you wonderful people. We often, at the start of our meetings, we always have a little breakdown in what's going on in your world and your country and so forth. And what they're living with over there is just diabolical compared to what's going on in in Australia. And even, you know, in the United States, what people are enduring over there and the amount of deaths that they're enduring and so forth is just horrible. Mm -hmm. So in no way am I making light of what the sufferance that you guys are dealing with. And I'm Sorry that that's happening in your part of the world too and I wish you all the best and hope that you are enjoying some sort of a regular Christmas with your family and friends if you can. So yeah. we're making the best of what we've got. Next week we'll probably do a wrap-up, a wrap up, a yearly wrap-up sort of thing. Mm. But in the meantime, Merry
0: Christmas. Yes. Really appreciate all listeners. Yes. Like, I, I'm really proud of the sort of community that we have going on at the moment. Unbelievable. Um, I think that people really stick together. I'm really proud of the our Facebook
1: group and the sort of interactions people are having in there. I think it represents- And the kindness that people show to each other. Yeah. It's amazing how little moderation has to happen in that group. Because people are enjoying each other's company and they're enjoying the the fellowship and the community that's been created amongst there. And, you know, what you guys are contributing there, as Pat has said before, it really is lovely. Like to go on there and not have to worry about what people are doing and saying, you know, and the laughter and the companionship and the love of dogs that we can share with each other around all around the world. Like literally all around the world. There's people from... Just about every corner of the globe in that group, and we're all come together. There's no political bullshit that exists in the group. It's just people who enjoy each other's company, love dogs, and love a good laugh as well. And that's, I think, if that's the ethos that you and I have always wanted to encourage. Yes, mm.
0: correct. All right, that's it. Yep. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Mm -hmm. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Yes. We just had a big meeting before this show. We did. About Patreon next year, and I'm super excited about it. Yep. Pat's just about jumping out of his skin with all these new ideas he's got. I'm radically – so it won't be the January content because I don't have time to put together things. So January will just be another one of the things that we've been doing. But – I'm radically changing what the content we put into Patreon. Yeah. And he pitched it to me and I love it. Hopefully for the better. Mm. It's going to be a lot of fucking work. So. Hope you love it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you don't, I'll be crushed. (laughs) If you don't like it, keep it to your fucking self. Right. Yes. Paul Doyle. Don't hurt my feeling. You could also get a wall tapestry from Teespring. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: and if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is in the Facebook group or shoot us an email. We are info at thecannonparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye. Merry Christmas.